Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. white folks and be able to raise the question what is it that we're going to do independent of white people it is very very hard for us to envision a world without white people but we cannot create our own agenda until and unless we can define an agenda that can envision a world in which they don't exist now we have to wake up and come back to the reality of them but certainly when we talk about a future we have to talk about a future from our point of view and our historical understanding of reality. Blog Talk thought they had me. <laughs> Africa's reascension has expanded. Welcome, everyone. This is Kamal McCasey Tahuti on the expanded version, the two hour version <laughs> of Africa's reascension. The young brother who gave me the opportunity. Your mic is open now. Please share, introduce, and then we'll start with the libation and go from there. Brother Heru? Uncle Jossineb, good brother, and welcome. I want to say uh, welcome to you. Uh, welcome you to uh, the, uh, well, we're going to change our name actually to Black Power Network. And so let me say uh, welcome you to the uh, Black Power Network that uh, we now have uh, right now up as uh, Haruka Anu. But I want to welcome you to the family. I am absolutely smiling from ear to ear uh, uh, for your program this evening. I think that uh, folks are going to be in for a treat. I could not wait uh, to be here so that I can actually kick back, listen to you, brother, uh, stimulate us and uh, educate us and uh, carry us forward. So. Um, I, I don't have an awful lot to say. I actually look forward to listening. Cool. All right. And thanks again for the opportunity. You know, it, it's going to be absolutely uh, our pleasure. And I want to say to the listeners, you know, Brother uh, Kamal, I've been listening to for a while uh, on his broadcast. I've been listening to you for uh, several months, and I've been telling folks about you, actually uh, indicating to folks that I'm very, very excited about your uh, your, your thinking, your critical analysis, the way that you engage authors um, and, uh, and the way that you engage uh, African people with your critical thinking and the way in which you enlighten us uh, and educate us and you call us forward, you really call the best out of African people. Uh, I believe undoubtedly that your show, I mean, already is a hit to me and uh, will continue to be a hit uh, for, for, for folks, and I'm simply going to be a champion of calling people in uh, to listen to your show. So I want to, you know, again, welcome you on board with us and say to you, have a wonderful show, have a wonderful time being a part of the family. Thank you, thank you, Madassi, Madassi. All right, so, um, Kamal McKay, Sidi you've introduced
the energies of our African gods, our African spirit forces, and the forces of those yet born to guide and bless this endeavor. I go, I go, I go. Odumakuman, Inyame, Inyame Wa, a treaty of poem. Olorum, Amen, Ra, Amen Ra, Beje Ensa, Asasiya Ensa, Abasum Ensa, Abasum Po Ensa, Nana Sergebi Ensa, Nana Esiketua Ensa, Nana Dadakofi Ensa, Nana Tigray, Nana Tigray, Nana Tigray Ensa, Nana Sankofa Ensa. Nanakumi and Sa, Kweku Free and Sa, Akonadi Abena and Sa, Asubontin and Sa, Bocherewa and Sa, Tamensa and Sa, Chehuti and Sa, Oshun and Sa, Shango and Sa, Nananoma and Samantho and Sa, and Samantho Abasua Fow and Sa, Abasun Abasua Fow and Sa, Yeshrimo Yansa. Yeshrimo Ahudin, Yeshrimo Enchera, Yeshrimo Sitapa, Yeshrimo Enkwasu, Yeshrimo Enkwasu Abasuo Fao, Yei Enkwasu. I ask that you, Odomakuman, Enyame, Enyamewa, Olorun, the Treaty Upon, Nkunukulu, Kepara, Pata, to use me and this form to impart clarity and cultural consistency to all within the sound of my voice. May I speak directly to their soon soon, their spirit, and reawaken the long, dormant, and asleep African inside them. Medasipa, Medasibio, Mo Piafo, Mo Nekasa, Medasinanano, Yo. The Apaiar libation is an ancient practice that is still done to this day in all rural traditional areas throughout the continent. Past, present, and future become one as those of tomorrow look upon what we are doing now and drawing strength from and doing the rituals of yesterday. Again, I want to thank Everyone, the Tanefer'ant family, and especially Heru Ka'anu for giving me this opportunity. I was listening for about the past month, month and a half, and seeing my fledgling attempts at trying to cram all this 200, 300,000 years of African consciousness into 30, maybe 45 minutes, and it just wasn't working. And and even when I first started, I had about an hour, you know, hour and a half, and that sort of worked, you know. But now we got the full two-hour gamut, and and some overtime. Um, and if we need it, I still got my show, my original show, um, for another thirty, forty-five minutes if needed. So we got about a good three hours <laughs> of, of of consciousness coming at you here through. Africa's reascension. Now, the expanded version. Now, I see, I ain't even said a word yet, and we already got another hand up. Go ahead and take this call. Um, 212 470. What is your name, and where are you calling from? 
you're on. Greetings, greetings. This is Yao Kepra calling out of uh, New York City. How's it going, brother? Yeah. I'm good, brother. I'm good. I just wanted to call in to uh, listen for for a quick minute. I got some other things that um, I have to go in. I'm, now the show three hours, I can come in and come back out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just wanted to come and uh, lend my support because, like you said, those uh, those uh, cramming sessions that you had were very crammed. So. Uh, I just wanted to get in early and uh, be on for a little while. I have to go about 10. I think I may be able to get back at 11, but I'll be on for at least another 40 minutes or so. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the support. Um, and so I'll put you back on mute, but, yeah, as usual, you got something to add. I'm, I'm sure you have something to chime in towards the second half when we talk about um, some Malcolm X books, so... Just put your hand back up, and we'll bring you in see what you got to say. In your day, excuse me. All right. So, yeah, so today, um, the expansion, I'll read from the show page, the expansion of Africa's reascension starts today. We will have some important preliminary book discussions that even though I haven't fully read them yet, I feel compelled to discuss them now, however cursorily it'll be. Um, the first book we'll discuss is Reading the World, an African Perspective on World History by Dr. Kwesi Konadu um, out of New York. <clears throat> Excuse me, who I who I had I, I had a pleasure of um re hooking up with him again at the Sankofa conference that just passed. He's a regular attendee there. And um, that's the only place, you know, outside of his website you can get the books. I had to jump on it and even get a little discount for it, too. So that was cool. So that's what we'll talk about the first half. And then the second half, you know, give give people the time to settle in. You know, some of the games are just being over with, settle in. And we'll do a preliminary discussion on Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention by Professor Manning Marable. And in parentheses on the page, I got, I reserved the right to have follow-up discussions on these books as they're more fully read, and I should have added as more information comes out. Um, but I'll get into all that when that time comes. So, I'm going to play a bit of music. And do I have it? Here, I didn't upload that. Turn it. Oh, yeah, I did. And play a promo and then come back and jump right into um, a cursory book discussion on Reading the World An African Perspective on World History by Dr. Kwesi Konadu. Peace and divine love, family. Do you want to critically analyze African culture from an intellectual, honest, and practical perspective? Are you tired of all the distractions, self-righteousness, yelling and arguing with no plan or solution? Do you want to build on the facts and deal with the subject or issue at hand? Well, come and listen to our nation's ambassador, Asar, make knowledge born every 9th and 19th of each month at 9 p.m. That's every 9th and 19th of each month at 9 p.m. on the show everyone is talking about, African Holistic Healing, at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Ambassador Assar. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Ambassador Assar, spelled A-U-S-A-R. 
or call in live to build or ask questions at 347-850-8653. That's 347-850-8653. Peace. There's no evidence that the black and white races can live in close proximity to each other in peace without, without whites attempting to oppress and exterminate the blacks.
not perish. <laughs> yes. Welcome back, everyone. Um, played a promo for Africa's Holistic Healing, which comes on uh, Blog Talk every 9th and 19th. Uh, Brother Ambassador Sarge just did a good show dealing with Aren't we supposed to talk on Blog Talk? <laughs> uh, very interesting discussion um, I'm still listening to the whole thing actually So, <clears throat> But but that's just a recent show he, he usually puts on magnificent programs And then a quick clip from um, Dr. Bobby Wright And then this one I still don't have all of the performers down But as you heard at the end, it came from a new blog talk show. He's in his, um, I think, third or fourth show now. It's called Pan-Africanism or Parish. Um, if you've been listening to my shows, I had a caller who called in um, from Morocco, I think, a few months ago, named Jaja. Well, that's him. He's on the um, blog talk forum now, bringing it hot. He is... Um, He's repatriated. He said, screw America. He lives in Morocco now with his wife and soon-to-be um, twins. That's, that's wonderful. So, 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 Jaja, if you're listening, uh, congratulations on the expansion of your family and congratulations on a um, continued great show. Um, and so, yeah, so he originally played it and then he sent it to me. So I'll need to get the details. Obviously, it's called We Are Africans. It was um, produced from some folks, I think, on the continent, and um, we, we we just got to hear that message more and more and more every day while we constantly get beat down in our head, we Americans, from our enemies and then from folks that look like us. It's good to see that even more and more folks on the continent are, are understanding that we are family, and it's just about working out the differences the regional differences and, 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 and stuff like that and then moving forward. And um so yeah. See if anything else going on in the chat room. <laughs> ah all right. Okay, so reading the world an African perspective on world history. If you just do, you know, a Google search of um, Dr. Kwesi Konadu, he has written, he's an up-and-coming um, African-centered scholar who who has, you know, quite a few journal, journal articles online. Um, he's written for, of course, um, the Sankofa Journal of Pan-African, of Reaffinization, the, the Sankofa Journal, the Pan-African Journal for Reaffinization and Nation Building, um, he's the author of about four or five books. Um, his first one was dealing with the East, uh, a, a major um, cultural and nationalist organization in the 70s. Um, then he wrote a great book on indigenous African healing based on his um, primary firsthand research of the um, um, Bono Tachiman people in um, what we now call Ghana. Um, and then he got one through Oxford Press called the Akan Diaspora in the Americas, where anywhere there was an Akan presence within the diaspora, he has documented it and located it, and um, you know expanded it for expanded it for a wider audience. And even in my debate where where I crushed um, Asar Imhotep, 
I even pulled a, a major quote from Dr. Kwesi Konadu. So, so he's been within my intellectual circle of information, as well as I would consider him, and, and hopefully he would still consider me, um, a personal friend. Like I say, we just met up at the Sankofa Conference um, the, the first weekend of April, and we chopped it up. You know, he let me know of um, this book and some other things that he has coming out, which are, <clears throat> will be some major, major work, not only speci- not only It'll be major work for people who have reconnected their, their lineage to the Akan and want to learn more information about the Akan. It's also for just reaffinizing people, period. Um, so let me put his – he created a um, publishing company um, over the past year or so. And let me put the um, URL in the chat room. It is www.encoso, N-K-O-S-O dot com. And it is here where you can, you know, check out the About Us page. But then he's got a lot of forthcoming titles. Some of them are very, 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 very interesting. Um, the Econ Studies in Africa and the Diaspora Historical Reader, um, Decolonizing African Religions, I guess he's going to republish the um, African Religions and Western Scholarship, which was an excellent book that was done by Akot B. Patek, P. Patek, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, And so I guess they're going to republish that book, Um, The Proverb and the Context of Akan Rhetoric, African Perspectives on on European Colonialism. These are just some forthcoming books that's on the um, page. And then he's got his books in the featured um, area right to the right. And the one that we'll be speaking about in brief tonight, um, Reading the World, an African Perspective on World History. One major thing that that I get, that I appreciate that um, Dr. Konadu brought to light and that I mentioned in my debate was that within – African studies within the universities, uh, within every book, every every book written by a, a Caucasoid or a Caucasoid-minded person in dealing with Africa. What what Dr. Konadu brings to the fore is that there is a possibly deliberate historical disconnection that takes place, meaning that. We read about African people, we read about African people, we read about African people. And then when the um, reality of of the Ma'afa comes about and roughly 200 million of us get ripped out of the continent and brought over throughout the rest of the world to create the African diaspora, Caucasoid researchers have consciously made a deliberate break of historical continuity, meaning that after the Ma'a or during the Ma'afa and especially afterwards, we stop being African. And so within the scholarship, quote-unquote scholarship, within the research, 
you then see two streams of of African research going on. You see how stolen Africans are living in in the diaspora and how disrupted Africans are still living on the continent, but only us, the black nationalists and the pan-Africanists, only our historians still make that connection that we're still Africans, even though we're in Ecuador, we're still in Australia, we're in, you know, wherever we are. But, and and, and it's one of those, you know, it, it's an obvious thing if you sit and think about it, but again, for, for someone of the weight of Dr. Kondu to bring that to light and just put it butt naked out there, it, it just really strikes me. And and I challenge someone to go look at these Caucasoid written books dealing with Africa proper, dealing with African diaspora, and and notice how there is a break in historical continuity. And so then quite naturally, I guess, unfortunately, <laughs> you get us who then continue that break. And so, you know, the break didn't start in the intellectual sphere, if you will, um, but it's definitely perpetuated and it's definitely maintained to this day, 2011 Gregorian calendar, so much so to the point, you know, where now we have to argue and fight and have all this major massive data to show that we're still Africans. And so that gets asinine and irritating at points, but we, we need to clear clarify that and then move forward. And so that's the one one major thing that, that at least for me personally, Dr. Conadu has done uh, more, as far as recently, because like I said, I used that quote in the debate. But in going into briefly reading the world um, in Chapter 1, Histories That Make the World, he starts off with a um, beautiful quote from Aikwe Armand, 2000 Seasons. If you don't have the book 2000 Seasons, get it. Get it, get it, get it. <laughs> 2,000 seasons, Aikwe Armand. Pieces cut off from their whole are nothing but dead fragments. From the unending stream of our remembrance, the harbingers of death break off meaningless fractions. Their historians bring us this news of shards. Their message, behold this paltriness, this is all your history. So that's how he starts this chapter off. And then he 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 brings it down and lets us know that Africa is and I'm quoting from page one, Africa is the only region of the world where its histories were and are written and authenticated by non African writers and institutions usually based in Europe and North America. Just think about that. Chinese have their official historians, and, and, and they can put out their history as they want. Now, of course, they have, you know, Caucasoid experts in Sino history and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But for folks who really want to know and who really know, if you want some real information about Chinese history, you either go to China proper or you at least get it from a Chinese person who hasn't been too Russianized. If you want, you know, authentic New Zealand history of the Maori people, you know, there are now, you know, more Maori people 
who 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 are literate in this way and who can write about their history, even though, of course, you know, Caucasoids have their so-called New Zealand experts or whatever, whatnot. But only with us and in our history do we take for granted that white folks are telling us the truth about our history, and then we won't even listen to John G. Jackson, John Henry Clark, Yosef Benyakina, um Hell, and probably we won't listen to Dr. Kwesi Konadu, who are rewriting the – and then I'm sorry I'm leaving out a whole cadre of continental Africans who have and are beginning to write their history from their perspective. We won't even listen to them because a white person says something different. Melissa um, Asante just read, wrote a great book on the history of Africa, and it's written from an African perspective. We won't even listen and read those books because it's coming from one of us and or because it's not the accepted canon within um, Africana history courses which are taught within the universities. You get, um, what's his name, J.D. Fage, and you get um, Shillington, and you get um, um, these cognizoids are escaping me right now, which might be a good thing. We get those folks as the writers of our history. But you barely even get Basil Davidson, who is one of the few Caucasoids who actually tried to come from an African perspective, and and most folks give him his props. And he recently just passed, and a few months ago, the the New African Magazine, you know, had a little memorial um, article for him. And so if, if, if folks would use him more, I think some of African history would be better off as far as being told, but... That is just upsetting, and it still goes on, even in this post-racial, multicultural world. Africa and African history is still authenticated by white folks, Caucasians. Um, page two, indeed, Armand's words suggest a decisive rethinking of the fragmented histories we embrace as whole and a rereading and rewriting of world history from marginal perspectives. Um, he really, Dr. Comedu really brings to the fore a lot of things, again, that, that we sort of take for granted, things that we sort of already knew, but he's highlighting them. And then within the rest of the book, he points to correcting um, from page three. Implicit in these traditions is that world history research and writing began when Europeans discovered the world outside of Europe. Consequently, formerly unknown peoples of Africa had to fit within Christian frames of history, reified as cursed descendants of Noah's son. That remained until the 20th century and, in some cases, the 21st century. The fact remains, continuing, that the periodization of history is still framed by the pretentious quote-unquote birth and quote-unquote death of an unconceived Jesus, if this was a historical rather than a mythical figure, those are his words, and peoples outside of Europe becoming historically real when they are discovered by Europeans. This ideology of discovery and historicizing peoples formerly unknown to Europe 
is no clearer illustrated than in Columbus's encounter with the Americas and how that prelude to conquest and colonialism marked the temporal divisions between Old and New World. These divisions of historical time reflect a Eurasian structurization of time rooted in Judo-Christian ideologies and calendars, themselves anchored in the enigmatic birth and death of Jesus and the arbitrary time of creation or year of the world. Now, I know Brother Heruka Anu is working with um, Sister Rikete Wimby, Amen, to get a comedic calendar out uh, so, so some of us can start using that calendar as a frame of reference. Um, I know um, my buddy, Kwesi Rodenham Batai Khan, um, I think he's working on a, a different periodization where it's dealing with 12,000 years in the past, something like that. Um, but and, and I have sat down and tried to figure out <laughs> a way that we need to, if we really want to have a nice break from European mentality, we need a new periodization of our history. Completely 100% outside of this BCAD, outside of this BCE and ACE, outside of the BP and all of this Caucasoid stuff, the, their periodization based on their time frame, we need one for ourselves. And, and I still haven't figured it out yet, me personally. I, I have the general idea of how I want to start, but I haven't figured out how to, um, you know, redate things based on that time. And so hopefully some folks can hit me up with emails and we can talk about it and I can bounce these ideas off of y'all and, at Kamal301 at yahoo.com, but we definitely need a re-periodization of our history. And I propose it starts, the beginning starts at 300,000. 300,000. That's when the first African homo sapiens sapiens was on the planet. So we need, you know, that unequal sign, you know, the wavy equal line signs, we need that and 300,000, and then move forward in history down to where we are now, and and adding all that type of time frame and time dynamics within our history, and, and just working out the kinks, I haven't done that yet, and so, you know, if, if that sparks something within somebody, you know, hit me up through email. But, again, I really like that, that, that um, Dr. Conadu lays it out, um, lay, lay, lays out, again, that, that something that we understand and that those of us who are researchers know. But, again, none of us have really went forward in trying to reconceptualize our historiography. I thought that was going to happen with the African World History Project, and it didn't happen in Volume 1. Maybe it will happen in later volumes if they have any. Um, but um, a re-periodization of our history, and 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 no hate on Kemet. I like you know the AFK, and and that can be used as a stepping stone. Let me say it this way: that can be used as a stepping stone. But I want to go back to before Kemet. I want to go back to the 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 the, the Twa and the San 
and the hosts of people who 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 are much much old and dank Nash, you know, well not that far, not dank Nash, at least two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand. But that's how far back I want to start with our history move forward. And so that's just me. But anyway, so yeah, and so then he again he he continues on page four and he talks about the stupidity. Um, one glaring example of a region constructed through European conquest and an assortment of maps, charters, and other instruments is the Atlantic world, a supposed global region centered on the Atlantic basin. What exactly a global region is remains unclear. Um, and then he even goes into how, just again, how paltry the Atlantic world is. And again, the the the... the Black conservative types, the black conservative intellectual types like um, Gilroy, he's big on using this Atlantic term. Um, everyone's favorite little um, Oompa Loompa, um, Skip Gates, his latest piece of crap, um, trans transatlantic something, something, but it's got Atlantic in there, basically focusing again on the Atlantic world, and he has a horrible piece in there on phenomenism. Which is a bunch of crap. We'll get into that one day, probably. But um, this notion of the Atlantic, folks are reaching for everything they can to not say that we're stolen Africans, not to say that we're continuations of the legacy of Africa. They will rather want to link us to the damn ocean that brought us in bondage over here then link us to the places where we got brought from in the first place. So this whole Atlantic <laughs> origin research crap that, 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 again, a certain small segment of, of, of black folks and cogsoids use when they don't want to call themselves African. And so I really like the fact that, again, he's poking holes in that. Um, in essence, Atlantic world, Middle Eastern, or Near Eastern constructs become their own worst enemy in the processes of history making. Um, though their popular use has meant uncritical wide acceptance, they appeal to a homogenized expectation of inevitable Americanization or Europeanization. National histories of European or North American origins are privileged. Africa remains marginal in those histories, and Africans are denied their own agency and are patronized as bearers of a culture that ultimately flowed from Europe in the end. Oh, no, that's it. And so, yeah, and so you got the Atlantic world fabrication. You've got this Middle East and Near East, and, and we can even throw in Far East. Because, and, and if you've done the research like I have, you have seen maps that have pulled Kemet, well, Egypt, all the way out of Africa and just show you that northern tip, and then it links you, links Egypt proper with this, this so-called Middle East fabrication. And it's like, wow, we're going to pull this place all the way out of the continent so the continent proper can't take any credit for it. And we go along with it. We continue to go along with it. And Dr. Konadu is um, pulling the carpet. 
from up under it. And within this first chapter, he just keeps going back through. Uh, European particular history has been, an interpretation of history has been put off, pushed off to the rest of the world as universal history, as everyone's history. And we have to combat that with our people every day, unfortunately. And especially those who have been <laughs> uncritically went through the academy system. He he rounds it up on a on a quick talk on culture, not even talk, a quick introduction of culture. Coming from page ten, every culture has an ideology or foundational views and values used to interpret historical, cosmic, and temporal realities. People ultimately are nothing but their culture and their historic movements in terms of the pragmatics of day-to-day living, collective ideas, or spiritual strivings. They are, histo- they are cultural histories in a world fashioned by local and global forces. The world is best represented by world histories plural, that challenge and disengage from a homogenized Eurasian construction of world history. And so then throughout the rest of the book, he goes through and in and, 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 and small um, integrated thematic and chronological approaches, um, he walks through and, and recasts world history um, outside of a European ideology, outside of a European worldview, uh, he's going through, you know, Asia, looking at India, of course, reconceptualizing Africa, and reconceptualizing um, bits and pieces of Europe as well, <laughs> um, because Europe would look a lot different from an African lens versus during the, through the present lens that that we get even our European history from. And so as I get through more of this book, because I sort of got it at the same time I got the Malcolm X book, so I jumped into it a little bit and then put it back down for the Malcolm X book. So I apologize. That's going to do if somebody will know I'm get back to them. <laughs> I will definitely get more into it, and hopefully we'll have um, an entire show dedicated to talking about reading the world an African perspective on world history. And if you yourself would like a copy of the book, please go to um, incoso.com, N-K-O-S-O.com, and there, again, like I said, you'll see the four books that he's already done and uh, some of the forthcoming titles that he's working on. And then if you do a Google search of his name, K-O-N-A-D-U, he's got some online journal articles that he's done that are very, very good, very, very good, um, critiquing um, especially the the study of Africana studies and, and critiquing the world studies and ethnic studies departments and things like that in relation to Africa and how they – cut us out and leave us out and deliberately disconnect us 
Um, again, so our history starts wherever Caucasoids put us versus starting arguably 300,000 years ago and only being disrupted now in the last 600 years of our total existence. And it's a shame that folks who don't know the 300,000 years will get caught up in this last 600 as if that's the totality of our history, as if then we need to de-link from being African, as if we need to link up with wherever we got placed into, and that's the best to hope that we can do. And, and, and again, if folks expose themselves when they call themselves American or say that they're not African and all of their solutions are just recasting Caucasoid ideas in kente cloth, you expose yourself to not knowing your own history, 300,000 years up to the present. You expose yourself to not having faith in African and African people. Um, and depending upon how hard you come in, 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 in your renunciation of Africa um, would then determine if you can be um, – a useful component <laughs> in our liberation or if you need to shut up and get out of our face. But anyway, let me see what's come into the chat room. It is so beautiful that I don't have to rush and zoom through this. this is, whew, I don't know what to do with myself. Okay. Um, let's see what some of the chat has been. Questions for people who say they are not African because Africans sold them into slavery. What were you before you were sold into slavery? Excellent, excellent question there. <laughs> and someone else in the chat co-signed that that was a good question as well. Uh, okay, reading some of the other stuff. Um, but one thing for sure, the blacks that were brought here did not call themselves Africans. Eh, yeah, we, we, you, you, that that could be a, a correct argument. The the, the notion of Pan Africanism is has started from outside of the continent. Um, what what I would argue. And what you know, Wade Nobles and uh, Dr. Kobe Kimball and others would argue is that even though we may not have been physically, verbally—I mean, using the words "African"—to to connote a, a a unity amongst ourselves, when groups interacted amongst themselves on the continent, the unity. Um, exuded throughout the cultural interaction. Um, rituals and ceremonies were largely similar. Names, of course, changed um, based on region. Other things may have changed based on region. But traditional African systems have more unity between them, between each other, than between any of the um, Caucasoid systems. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm in the chat room again. 
Are you taking calls from Malcolm X? I tried to call the last topic. Um, we haven't gotten to Malcolm yet. We're going to get to Malcolm in a few more minutes. We were talking about um, reading the world. Sorry about that, Russell. We were talking about uh, the first book, Reading the World, an African Perspective on World History, doing a, a quick cursory examination of that um, and get everybody warmed up to this format. This may be the first time folks coming through the Tanefer Unk and Heruka Anu family are hearing Kamama Casey the Hootie, so I want to warm you up on me and who I am and the books that, that move and motivate me, and then we'll move into um, Baba Mawali. So he'll be coming up shortly. We'll probably do another music interlude and and and, and and then come back and jump into it. So please stay on and, and, and put your hand back up once we get into it because um, it might get a bit hasty talking about it. But, um, yeah, so so going back to um, Black Sufi Man here in the chat room where he mentioned that we didn't call ourselves Africans, I would say that, that, that our while we didn't may not have verbally used the word our our culture, our day-to-day living, Express the African world view And when you see the interactions Of traditional African groups Amongst each other um, For the most part You know if they didn't have beef with each other You know they, 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 they There was a communal commonality Within these groups And then even when you do research And look at the way traditional folks Are living in Australia, in New Zealand, in in the Solomon Islands, you know, uh, uh, other stolen Africans that that were probably put out there during the um, East African slave trade. If they didn't, the East African Mahasa, if they didn't, if they weren't part of the original migratory groups, uh, you see a lot of strong cultural linkage with those traditional groups. With Africa as well, you see the um, egalitarian living. You see um, twin lineal or even matrilineal um, family focus. You see the circular dance that calls upon um, different divinity forces to come down and actually join with people who are trained for that. You see a um, deep, deep abiding connection and understanding to an obligation with the ancestors, those that passed, you know. Um, from the physical realm And so you see that cultural connection With traditional um, Groupings All throughout the world basically And that ties back To Africa definitely And so even if we weren't Specifically and directly using that Word African that to unite Us at that time You definitely see the cultural cohesiveness Of the African world view and then was that 1893, the, 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 the Henry Sylvester Williams coins the term Pan-Africanism, and then we get the, the, the conferences, and you see the term and the actualization of Pan-Africanism take larger effect, and that's where, you know, we start using the term Africa and all that sort of stuff. And so, so yeah, so all that was just a comment to some of the stuff that was in the chat. So, yeah, so what we're going to do, is play another quick clip of music and then jump into, I guess, what everybody want to talk about, what everybody want to hear. <sighs> Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. 
by Professor Manny Marable. I don't represent the red, white, and blue. I cut the head off the devil and I throw it at you. You hoo is my worldview. RBG to the grave. Even though Obama the president, we still enslaved. I ain't have to be born or be raised on the continent. I know where I'm from. It's engraved in my consciousness. We've won folk, many tribes, many sons and daughters. Before the white man, artificial borders, we were warrior kings. Victoria dynasties had to open my mind and see they historians lied to me. I don't know what my tribe was. They stole my culture. But I know I'm still standing on that set. The shows is yo, I could have been close to Yoruba, Kikuyu. So I just claim I'm all from a statue to Zulu. I am because we are one tribe, children of the sunshine. Let's ride this nation time. A Udo Belahe, Mena Chetane Raji. 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 to the world, 
and the seed from which our culture developed. And All right, we're back. Expanded Africa's Reascension. This is your host, Kamal McCasey Dehudi. Folks who are in the chat room, you want to get involved in this, in what we've already talked about, or in the upcoming discussion, 347 633 9561. That's 347 633 9561. Hmm. Malcolm X. El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Or as those of us in the African community know him as Baba Omawali. The son has returned. For everybody who's not in the cave knows already, finally, 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 the new biography on Bob Omawali is out. It was written by Professor Manning Marable from Columbia University. It's a total of 594 pages. Got a lot of notes, so you get about 400. And if you don't, if you don't want to read the acknowledgments, you get about 490 readable pages of a book. Um, I'm hesitating now as far as what I want to. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'll save my own personal comments more towards the end. Um, And I guess there was a brother in the chat room who had said they wanted to speak up on the Malcolm book, and I think this might be his number, 973518. Let me bring you in. What's your name and where are you calling from? First of all, I never asked that question. I was speaking on, I wanted to speak on the name Africa and where the name Africa came from and the fact that we got to be free in name as well as in fact. You know, oh, okay. you, you, excuse me, you spoke on the caucus side, but we realize and understand through research that the African, the name Africa is still a European name. So we're gonna, if we're going to free ourselves as a people, we've got to free ourselves in name as well as in fact. We still running them up. We still going in a circle, like a dog running after his tail. We're not producing nothing, but a lot of books, but no industry, no concrete information that's going to lead us to a unified people. We still dealing with the name Africa, and you know from your own history that 250,000 years ago we didn't call ourselves no African. You got to understand how the, how the European. Uh, when he conquered this planet, when he took over for the black man, he put his name on the black people, or the original people. Okay. Okay. See? But so you don't see nowhere. Name, my name? My name is Abdul yeah. Rashid. All right. Okay. So we have to learn the fact that if we're going to learn history by ourselves, you're still dealing with the European history when you call us Africans. Now, every everyone that have studied history, especially black history, know that where that name came from. 
See, we're going to well, keep calling ourselves African. Listen, Africans, we can just keep calling ourselves a nigga or a nigga. Okay. Because that's what he named us. Isn't it true? Let's go here. He naming, go he, he's naming our only way we can understand each other, brother, is through his language. So we've got to learn how to communicate through the language but unite ourselves with that language. Okay. we still throwing something out there to people that don't understand anything. We call ourselves African. If you're gonna call yourself okay, African, me... call yourself a coon. Call yourself call call yourself a gigolo because you're doing the same thing. Just the name has changed, but the game is the same. That's what I want to say. Thank you very much. Okay. That's it. Okay. Is there a rebuttal? You gonna stay online? Do we gonna go I, do a I'm little back and forth? How you want to? No, I'm gonna stay okay. online, but I just want to. I'm like, does I got the clear thing? I got the. It's like a smoke screen with us. Every time we start making progress, every time a man come up with a good book to guide us into who we are, he comes somebody else. You understand? So we understand who's throwing that, who's muddying the water. How are you going to teach the young people? How are you going to guide the young people? How are you going to guide this generation with the pants hanging down to the ground if you don't give them the correct understanding? That's why they're in the condition that they are because they're not right, the right. full understanding of who we are as a great people. You know, we're still looking at ourselves as pimps, hoes, and prostitutes, and jigaboes, and drug addicts. We've got to stop doing that and start building something, words. Words make a mind, so we've got to start building a word. Take that word and build upon that word. See, we've got to know who our God is before we came over here. We've got to know our culture before we, we built the whole civilization. So why should we lessen ourselves? and call ourselves okay. another name other than who we are. So clear that okay, up. Let me... clear that up, then we, then we can go on with the conversation. Okay. That's so now I'm going to put you on mute so I can actually get a word in here, and then we can bring you back in so we can have – we can actually spend a little time on this, hopefully not a lot, but a little bit. But I just want to get a word in and, and then go from there, and then I will bring you back in. Yeah. Agree. It's possible that 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 the name, the word that we use called Africa may have not come from us. Or it may have. I go as far as saying I don't know fully. I say they're all theories. The only theories that we usually get are the Sepio Africanus and the Leo Africanus, which I have still yet to get full documentation on that it was called nothing and then they get there and then it's called Africa because of them. I would love for somebody to give me a reference for either Scipio or Leo naming the continent Africa. And then we get all of the Arabic and Latin breakdowns for the term too. But what I don't hear too many folks deal with is that there is some research Based on Afu, Ra, and Ka, that is within, that is on the comedic stele that you can go to the continent and see, where it talks about the beginnings of of the formations of the earth, and it talks and and, and it's named uh, the, the 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 Ka of Afu Ra, and and next show I can get the whole clip. And, and share it with folks and break it down. And and so that possibly lends some 
some information to a theory that says that deep within the comedic recesses, when they were attempting to share the beginnings of the planet, that their terms, Afu, Ra, and Ka, were used to talk about, and we know that Africa was the, the, the place that we now call Africa was the first place on the planet. It has barely moved um, with the shifting of the planet based on plate tectonics and all that sort of stuff. So it, that, that just seems to be a little bit too much for me for coincidence that the comedic folks got Stella written down where you can go look at it, where they talk about the beginning of, of Earth. They name it Afu-Ra-Ka, or, or the, the, the Ka of Afu-Ra. And then, then the person who puts that argument forth then says, you know, it became bastardized into, into the term that we now use and say it's Africa, and, um, and we go from there. So that's at least one theory. I say it's all theory, but that's at least one theory to give African agency to us possibly come up with the term Africa. The final point I'll say, and then we'll bring you back on, and hopefully we won't go through too much time with this. What, for me, it's the worldview of the traditional people that has not left us for 300,000 years that I focus on. It is us tapping back into the essence of our cultures that made us sustain for the 200-some-odd thousand years in relative peace. Um, we also have to look at the problems of our culture that let Caucasoids and Arabs come in and do what they did, and we need to tweak those aspects of it up. But instead of getting caught up on this name thing, and I was just listening to another blog talk show that was like the whole Ambassador of South talking about this whole name thing is, is – sort of fallacious. When we talk about Africa, you know what we're talking about. When we talk about the African worldview, all the folks who we're talking about know what we're talking about. And so let's not fully get caught up in the name, and that's why I even try to catch myself and say the place that we now call Africa. But I, here at Africa's Reascension, and I got it in the title, I'm focused on the ways of the culture, the ways of life, that blueprint for living, that we were nurtured in for at least 300,000 years that we need to get reconnected with and make it modernized without westernizing it and use that to move us forward for 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 um, everything we need. So now I'll bring you back in, brother, and then we'll go from there. Go ahead. To build that bridge, my brother, that word on that name, we all, all we know that from being in this country. We know that was enforced on us. We understand that. But to build that bridge between motherland and ourselves and fatherland, we gotta cut that we got to destroy that word Africa. It's like they called us niggas and coons and colored people. We gotta destroy that because words make people. You said that is a theory. A theory is not even a fact. You can't improve a theory. We gotta start right. and, and I'm saying all of them are theories. The the theory on the Latin phrase, the theory on okay. the yeah. Arabic, that's theory too. So I'm just adding in an African piece uh, to the I'm theory. Okay, we, we gotta get rid of those theories and get to some and get to some facts because facts is gonna make this thing move. See, 
facts will well, bring fact people is, into it to make them interested in what you're speaking on. Because we've been so doing we this a long agree. time. We will agree that the fact is that practically nobody before Europeans had a word for the entire landmass that they were on. And those labels that? came afterwards. Our cable yeah, line is our cable line is in is in some sort of um academic disarray because some folks are saying that it tends to have more Arabic connotations than African with the owl and some other stuff. So our cable line is sort of in question right now among some circles. So our, our it, it, as far as the title that we personally came up with for the entire continent, I ain't came across it yet. So intellectually, I can agree with you that we didn't have a term. It's the term that we use now, and it's the term that folks use. And 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 I'll I'll even go here with you. At some point, those of us who are traditional minded, wherever we are out in the diaspora. We do need to hook up with the traditional folks who are still living their real ways on the continent and then maybe have a sit-down conference that ain't got no cameras there and we come up with a term for the continent that, that the oldest folks on the continent and their children can all agree on. I, I would go for that, but at least for right now, we're using the term Africa or Afaru, Afuraka and some other terms. But Yeah. Let me just add this, and I'll let someone else speak. Uh, am I still on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. We we tend to uh, run away from the word or the name Arab, Arabic, Arab. See, the Arabs, the true Arabs are original people, the true Arabs. You understand? Yeah, let me say this. They still I did some research. People. I did some research on... Uh, the Book of the Dead, uh, the hieroglyphics. Don't you know Arabic was in those hieroglyphics? And that goes back thousands of years. So what we're doing, they don't want us to think that that language is our language. That are you is our language. Of the Meroitic, are you speaking of the Meroitic script that looks a lot like Arabic, which was which no, some but when folks you, say Arabic was taken? No, but when you trace the words, when you trace the true words, you'll see words that's in there. That is true Arabic. You got you're looking at the white Arabs. They're gonna distort things anyway because they don't want you to see yourself. But when we take well, that no. language and really look into that language, we we definitely see ourselves in that language. See, but, if there were, go ahead. But if we continue to uh, destroy that bridge that brings us across of understanding, and destroy those men who brought us to that understanding and raised us out of a, a psychological grave, we will never get nowhere. That's why everybody's on top of us, because they don't want us to aspire to our true identity. See, the men that come along to give us that, we we destroy them after a couple of years. We don't want to hear that stuff. And we right back into the caucus side, as you said, in the caucus mountain, eating pork and, and jewelful roots and flesh raw. Flesh raw meaning uh, not actually flesh, but raw intelligence, raw made-up theory. That's why we're in a condition in which we are today. You see that in this country. In any country that you see us as a people, there's no unity because the body of that knowledge that we need is our soul, and they don't want us to have that soul. They don't want to have that life. 
They don't want to come. They don't want us to come back to life. So we can't shake each other's hands and 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 call each other brothers in the true language, in the true understanding, not in no theory. We talking about what, facts what, here, right? You know, whatever you say, we talking about we talking about the facts. Arabic is a true language of the black man, of the original people. Ah, okay. uh, and well, listen, when you trace it back, trace it back. When you trace that language back, then you'll see it. You trace that language back into the hieroglyphic, you will see it. But they I'm have sorry, uh, they have shrouded us so long. They have they have hooked they have hoodwinked us so long that when we see ourselves, we think it's fake. We think it's a I'm myth. sorry, brother. I gotta meet you there. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. That's I'm sorry. That no. What were we doing before this Arabic stuff? Um, I would advise there's intro to intro to Kemet, a brother named Afro Styley. He it's an hour long video, so you might need a little bit of time. He walks through and exposes all of his fallacies. Allah is not written in the damn Medu Nature. I'm sorry. We were around long, long before our language got broken down and broken into some Arabic. If we want to talk about African languages, we need to talk Niger-Congo. If we want to go back far enough, let's deal with the cliques. And, again, I just saw something um, on another on another um, research site where the brother, I think it was from the God Killer, who was talking about how if you look at the, 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 the Meroitic script, which hasn't been fully deciphered yet, and you look at Arabic, you see the similarities. And so when he was trying to read some of the some of the Medunetra to a friend of his who he who was skilled in Arabic, he could pull out some of the words because there's a similarity. Not because Arabic is some damn true religion, true no, no, no. We are African people. <laughs> whether you want to call it Africa, whether you want to call it something else, I don't get caught up in that argument. 300,000 years ago, before the thought of an Allah, before the thought of a Muhammad, before the thought of, of Bilal and this Arabic script and this covering up women so you can't see your damn eye, before all of that, we were in, the, in, in, to, we were in totality in the continent living our way, and the world was coming to us to get enlightenment and to get knowledge. And, and and the later period of our African existence is where you see Timbuktu and, and all these writings, half Arabic and half African. That's at the end. That's when we was on our demise going down towards to the point that we are now. But, no, Arabic gets no play here. The Arabs, black and white, help enslave us. No, 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 this is Africa's reascension. There are plenty of us. Out there, you can get that Wesley Muhammad trite and all that. No, but that, that I'm sorry, that's not going to pass here as serious scholarship. Now, if we want to have that show where we're blasting and breaking down this Arabic stuff once and for all here on the expanded version of Africa's Recension, we can do it, but we ain't going to do it today. And other shows have probably done it even better. Um, because my thing is blasting Christianity. There are a whole bunch of other folks who are better equipped at, at 
putting Islam in its proper place, uh, but that 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 gets no play here. Um, I'm I'm sorry. Back on topic. So, so Man and Marable, he's been working on this book since '87, I think. I think I made a note on that. That's when he had started. Yeah, 1987 is when he first first started with the idea, and he was getting graduate students to come together and do the book stuff. And he went through a whole bunch of different transitions, and uh, and unfortunately, he passed April 1st. Earlier this year, a very good, a very interesting uh, book came out. Was Beyond Boundaries, Demanding Mirable Reader. And and you know it's any like a reader. It's a compilation of some of his different articles that he had written in other places. Um, Man and Marable has never been, never would call himself a uh, nationalist. He calls himself a social democrat, a socialist democrat. Um, he he sees himself as, you know, attempting to use scholarship to um, bring a socialist democracy to black folks, basically. And so that, that, that would be one critique you could do of the book just on that alone. You have a non-nationalist, a non-black nationalist figure writing about an explicitly nationalist figure. So right there, you you should know what to expect going into the book. You're going to get lots of overtures on um, socialist thought and socialist theory. Um, you'll get a lot of overtures dealing with um, worker strikes and union strikes and this sort of thing. And and it does come up early on in the book. What I tried to do, what I'm, I'm still going through it. I'm, I'm, he just, where I'm at now is Malcolm just got out of prison, and he just um, became the uh, main minister in New York, I think. And then they 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 talked about, and then Marable talked about Farrakhan. So that's where I'm at. It's chrono- chronologically done. So that's where I'm at in the book. And I've tried to be good because I really wanted to just jump to the end and work my way back. And that's what I'm finding out. Most folks, most of the nationalist folks are doing, they they jump to the back and they're going forward. And, and I'm trying to be good and not do it that way. But um, I have went through, and, and I'll tell you why I brought up the reader in a minute. To prepare for this I talk, I have tried to get a hold of every single <laughs> review on the book that has been put out, um, at least up to now. I've got the, the first one that came out, the New York Times, the Guardian. Let's see, the New York Times did one by um, Michiko Takutani. Yeah. <laughs> That was the person who did the review of New York Times. Um, the Guardian was a little bit better, I think. Um, Hugh Muir, that 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 was a brother um, who did that review. The um, Wilson Quarterly did one. 
You've got um, Barnes and Nobles did a review. Um, white guy, I think Adam Bradley, who's got some books on hip hop, he did that review for Barnes and Nobles. Uh, Joe Dreyfus did one from the Root. We're gonna come back to the Root in a minute. Uh, Democracy Now had something with Juan Gonzalez, Michael Eric Dyson, and um, was Bill Fletcher in this one? Yeah, and Bill Fletcher. That was when the book first came out, so that wasn't really a review per se. But uh, Financial Times did one by Wilbert Rideau. And then, of course, The Post did one um, on, just on Fridays by Will Haygood. Um, but actually, the three, four, that that immediately jumped to to me, jumped out for me, was I want to direct everyone to Vox Union. I'm going to put this in the chat room, voxunion.com, V as in victory, O-X as in Malcolm, union.com. It's a um, brother named Jared Ball. He has probably put together the the most up-to-date and on top of it um, group of talks about the book that I've come across from, you know, at least a pro-black stand. Uh, for folks who have been following it, you know that um, Carl Evans has come out <laughs> with a fury on on the Marable book, and we'll get to what he had to say in a minute. But just recently, um, on Vox Union, um, Jared had Carl Evans on the show. Um, also, Zach Kondo wrote a book dealing with the assassination, and he had him on the show. Um, there were also two other brothers who gave um, reviews and critiques of the book, and and all those interviews are on Vox Union. So you you so especially especially dealing with the assassination piece, and if Marable brought anything new to it, these two brothers Zach Kondo and Carl Evans wrote books respectively back in the 80s and and 90s dealing with the um, the, the just the assassination piece of Baba Mawali. And their their two interviews on Vox Union are very, very enlightening, um, to say the least. Um, basically what they say is that, no, there's no new information on the assassination piece that, that has come out. Uh, and Carl even goes as far as saying he basically just redid, re- reworded a lot of my work and Zach Kondo's work and 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 put it off as new stuff that he's found out to help sell books. Um, what all the four reviewers on Vox Union and Jared Ball have surmised is that um, there's not too much new information that's in the book, and why is the brother digging around in the bedroom of Bob Mawali? Hmm. Um, what's going on with the echo? I'm trying to. I'm holding it right up to my head. Um, is that any better? Can you uh, can you hear me a bit better? 
moving it around. Uh, a triple echo. Or maybe I'll turn my voice. I don't hear the show. Okay, somebody else sounds sound clear. I'll turn down my sound on the computer just to make sure there's no crazy feedback coming from there. But, yeah, from the pro-black camps, it's almost agreed that across the board that there is not any new information that is coming out um, from this book. Um, Jared Ball did a piece, and he submitted it to the um, Greenville Post, G-R-E-A-N-Ville Post, and I just love the title of it. A Life of Reinvention or the Reinvention of a Life. And in this piece, Jared Ball, you know, walks through the discussions that he had with um, Todd Burroughs and um, Richard Prince. And Richard Prince was the first one who conducted the interview with Carl Evans. And, again, we'll get to Carl in a minute. Um, And so, yeah, Jared Ball is walking through basically saying that it seems like from the folks that he's talked to is that Maribel is attempting to reinvent the life of Baba Omawali versus showing his life as being reinvented by him himself. And I just, again, listening on, on, on one of the interviews on Vox Union, the um, Zach Kondo interview, he pulls out a piece in the book towards the back. Yeah, on, on page 485 that I, <laughs> I really didn't want to get into, but he, he, he mentions it in his reader, and so I'll come from his reader instead of coming from the text proper um, on that critique. But it seems like Marable is reinventing Malcolm to fit more of Marable's socialist, integrationalist, non-race background and perspective. And 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 it's a shame if I finish it and I come to that same conclusion. I'm sort of getting there, but I'm not there all the way. Another real good review that I came across was on gnomes, N-O-M-E-S, dot Malcolm-X.org. And I don't get the name. I, I didn't get the name of the person that did it. But they did on April 13th, and it starts off, that was it. After racing through Manny Marable's nearly 500-page biography of Malcolm X, recently released, I realized that I hadn't learned anything significant more than that which I already knew, except that Malcolm was not very happy in his marriage. I knew Betty wasn't happy with Malcolm's sexual performance at some stage in their marriage and that he may have cheated on Betty a few times near the end of his life, just as she may have cheated on him. We also get more details on Malcolm's tourism, activism abroad, and details um, on the relationships Malcolm had with people inside and outside of the nation. Sometimes these details are almost mundane and gossipy, 
overall, the book leaves one with an empty feeling. Um, there is no real analysis of Malcolm's social and political thought. There's no summation of what changes the man was going through and how they were significant. We get a hodgepodge, which may well have re- reflected Malcolm's own state of mind, sometimes here, sometimes there, not sure if he was being sincere or just playing to get a broader audience. But even that hodgepodge is not spelled out and traced through with adequate analysis. So what's the point of going through all that literature to come up with what is largely a cross between filling out some gaps and tabloid fodder? So that's what that person had to say um, on knows that Malcolm-X.org. Then, and this is the part where i, I got to spend a little bit of time here. Another piece, like we're getting, for folks who, again, who've been following some of the reviews and some of the talk, uh, a big, heavy, heavy overlay by Caucasoids on the um, more salacious aspects within the book. The primary one that that rubs me myself to no end is this allegation of homosexuality. I remember I saw a Kagazoi like a few years ago during during ironically enough even Black History Month or maybe it was during the the Letters Month, you know, G L T W X Y Z all that shit. I think they got a month now. I think during that month this guy had written like two articles like Malcolm was by get over it something like that but that was the first where I had heard of that allegation and then of course he had mentioned um, the Bruce Perry book and how Bruce Perry went through all these you know interviews with people who knew him and all that sort of stuff and it was like yeah so this is what's up about Malcolm he's gay, and we as the gay community are going to claim him as one of ours, Ray. And I was like, okay. So then the book comes out, and that's one thing on my mind. I'm like, okay, how much is he going to deal with this? Where he's going to lay out all this information, and then he's going to say, you know, one way or the other, if it's true or not. And so... Folks have sort of done this, but they haven't done it the way I want to do it, so I'm about to do it this way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entirety, where it's at, yeah, page 65 and 66. So if you got the book, go to page 65 and 66, well, 65. 65 is where he laid, where he starts off, um, Malcolm's initial connections with this white guy who was supposedly the gay guy that that Malcolm was dealing with, named, um, where's his name? William Paul Lennon. And so on page 65, he gives, you know, a brief breakdown of uh, Mr. Lennon, and sometimes... He says, sometimes in, during the early 30s, 
or 40s, Lennon had relocated to Boston, where he began to employ male secretaries in his home. So, so he starts it off, you know. I guess I should start off here. <laughs> okay, stick on page 65. He first returned to New York City and subsequently to Boston, desperately trying to survive through a variety of hustles. It was during this time that Malcolm encountered a man named William Paul Lennon, and the uncertain particulars of their intimate relationship would generate much controversy and speculation in the years following Malcolm's death. So that's the beginning paragraph. And so then he goes through, again, like I say, a paragraph of this white guy's life, and he probably didn't become a multimillionaire, but he was wealthy. And so then he had a penchant for employing male secretaries in his home. So now let's continue. Malcolm's initial contact with Lennon may have come through um, classified ads placed in the New York paper, newspapers. What is certain is that sometime in 1944, Malcolm had began working for Lennon as a quote-unquote butler and occasional houseworker, that's in quotes, at the Lennon's Boston home on an affluent stretch of Arlington Street overlooking the public garden. Some, soon, something deeper than an employer-employee relationship developed. Now, this part is in, is in parentheses. After Malcolm's later arrest in 1946, he would give the police Lennon's name and address as a previous employee, convinced that Lennon would use his financial resources and other contacts to help him during his time in prison. Now we're out of the parentheses. The autobiography describes sexual contacts with Lennon, except that Malcolm falsely attributed them to a character named Rudy. So now there's a pull quote here. Rudy had a side deal going a hustle that took me right back to the old steering days in Harlem. Once a week, this is on page 66, once a week Rudy went to the home of this old, rich, Boston blue blood, pillar of society aristocrat. He paid Rudy to undress them both, then pick up the old man like a baby, lay him on his bed, then stand over him and sprinkle him all over with talcum powder. Rudy said the old man would actually reach his climax from that. Now, out of the pull quote, check this. Based on circumstantial but strong evidence, based on circumstantial but strong evidence, Malcolm was probably describing his own homosexual encounters with Paul Lennon. The revelation of his involvement with Lennon produced much speculation about Malcolm's sexual orientation, but the experience appears to have been limited. There is no evidence from his prison records in Massachusetts or from his personal life after 1952 that he was actively homosexual. More credible, perhaps, perhaps, is Rodnell Collins' insight about his uncle. Quote, now, now, now this is key, and this this is sort of irritating how Marable did this. So now this, what I'm about to read, is a quote from Rodnell Collins. 
Malcolm basically lived two lives. When he was around Ella, he enthusiastically participated in family picnics and dinners. He saved some of his money to send to his brothers and sisters in Lansing. End quote. That's the entire quote that we get from Rodnell Collins on insights about his uncle. The rest of this that I'm about to read is Marable's voice. And 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 I hope when folks was reading this they caught this. Because the way it's laid out is he starts off with this quote and if you don't watch it, it makes you think that this entire paragraph, this entire end of the paragraph is coming from Rodnell Collins. Just that first part that I read is is quoted as coming from him. But the rest of what I'm about to read is Marable. But in his Detroit red life, he participated in prostitution, marijuana sales, cocaine sessions, numbers running, the occasional robbery, and apparently paid homosexual encounters. Keeping the two lives separate from each other was never easy due to his unstable material circumstances, but Malcolm had intelligence and ingenuity to mask his most illegal and potentially upsetting activities from his friends and family. And that's it. What I just read from you, page 65 and 66, is the totality of the supposed alleged homosexual activities of Malcolm X. But then he goes on like he like he didn't expose something with rigorous scholarship. He then restates again on page 78 talking about, you know, he goes through these attributes of Malcolm Little and then he adds in that he was a homosexual lover. And then on page um, 95 and 96, he, he he mentions it again and talks about they probably, him and Lennon probably created a bond, a, a homosexual bond. And, and and since it's going chronologically, he's not he's not going to come back to it. And I think maybe somewhere else in here, I think they have said um, Shorty, Malcolm Shorty Jarvin had said some other stuff about him being homosexual. But in one of the reviews, and even in the book, we have to remember that M- Malcolm Little, when he got caught, ratted out Shorty. So Shorty is going to be pissed off that now I'm spending jail time with your ass because you were a snitch. And so, yeah, I may say some negative stuff about you because I'm pissed off about you. But Manny Marable was supposedly had hundreds of thousands of dollars at his disposal. He, again, in his reader, he talks about he'd been working on this. He started working on this since 1987. He had a team of researchers, research, he got whole teams put together to put together this book. And the totality of this allegation is this one piece here about the the, the Rudy and talcum powder incident. And now, even before I read it, because other folks have mentioned what I'm about to say, too, but even before I came across that, the, the, what the other folks said, this part struck me. 
while you could call that weird behavior, while you could call it kinky behavior and questionable behavior, Malcolm is not performing fellatio on anybody. Malcolm is not taking it in the rectum from anybody. Malcolm is not giving anyone a hand job. Those acts to me would be homosexual behavior. Undressing a guy and picking him up, carrying him like a baby and sprinkling talcum powder on him, if all that is true, <coughs> excuse me, is a little bit off. It's a little bit weird, but I don't I don't know if that is homosexual behavior. And then if that's the only incident that you have, can you call it a behavior? If this is just it, then this is some one-time thing he did for some money. Other folks, again, have mentioned that if he was this raging homosexual that now gay folks want to take in and claim as theirs, then he had plenty of time to do it in prison. But even even Maribel has to say from his looking at all the records and court documents and prison records and stuff that there was none of that in prison. That is the place. <laughs> if you're going to do it, that is the place to do it in prison. And there is no record to nothing to show that that was done then. And then especially his personal life after 52, you know, after he got into the nation and that whole thing. So, again, if this is true, we have one account of weird, questionable, kinky behavior. I don't know if we can run and say Malcolm X was gay with this one possibly questionable experience. And this circumstantial but strong evidence, that's a cute, you know, literary type of thing that us writers do, you know, to try to <laughs> to try to, 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 to give more weight to something that we may actually have proof for. But especially with this, I was expecting pages and pages of of stuff to come out and been like, oh damn, okay, yeah, I guess he did do Another thing that I, I, I think I heard somebody else mention, if Malcolm was gay or if he was performing a whole bunch of gay sex acts, just on the fact that everybody across the board, we can all agree that Malcolm X was being surveilled 25-8-392, okay, more than 24-7. If the Caucasoid government would have had anything possibly remotely close to linking him in that camp to help defame him in our eyes, don't you think they would have done it? In 40, 50 years, nothing. During when the movie came out, they could have put it out there. Nothing. There, There is no real, tangible evidence. And now we've got this book to even prove it. If that's all you got, <laughs> bruh, that, that one little paragraph, we could call Malcolm Little, because one thing in, in, in on Vox Union, they m- made the point to say that Marable doesn't really do a good job of helping us see the distinction between Malcolm Little and Malcolm X. We just get Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm throughout the book. Even though it's done chronologically and, and, you know, if we're following it, we know, okay, this is Malcolm Little, Malcolm Little, and then he officially gets the X and all that sort of stuff. 
But while you're writing the book, again, as a literary tool, since he's reinventing himself all this as as you're trying to make it, then you need to keep us honed in on we are right now looking at Malcolm Little, Malcolm Little, Malcolm Little. And then when he makes this transformation, Malcolm X, Malcolm X, Omar Wally, El Hajmali Kashabaz, Omar Wally. You see what I'm saying? And so I think that gets, that has gotten lost in the sauce, especially with the New York Times piece. Luckily, the Washington Post piece didn't get caught up in that. The Times, they really jumped on that piece. But um, if that's all you got, and then I, I almost see that on page 66 as literary disingenuousness, where he uses a quote from Rodnell giving insights on his uncle, and then that quote stops, and then the rest of it is done in Marable's voice, where he adds in the apparently paid homosexual encounters. You did not do a good job to um, lay out that argument. Not at all. You just go make the blanket statement and then move on. There's no footnotes. It's no see. Also, it's no nothing there. So, if you was alive, I would tell you take your based on circumstantial but strong evidence and shove it. But I want to speak ill of the dead now. But um, so yeah, for me that that the whole Malcolm being homosexual, he may have had a weird encounter. A, a kinky paid encounter, but from how it's laid out in the book, <laughs> he does not properly substantiate the argument. He then moves on, but then constantly comes back to it with little side shots, like he didn't expose something when you've exposed that you probably used a lot of that money to do the project for some of your hospital bills since you were sick all that time, but you definitely didn't use it in um, doing some real earth-shattering, groundbreaking research on Bob Omawale. But now the Vox unit, I still, let me go. Got a few minutes left, though. So Manny Marable, Another disappointing part of the Malcolm book was that I had got to Beyond Boundaries, his reader, first. And in here, he has an article entitled, Rediscovering Malcolm X's Life, A Historian's Adventures in Living History. And it's about, what is it, about 10, 15 pages, but it's basically walking through all of the drama that he had to go through within these 20-some-odd years to get all the information that he did get to um, put the book together. And I just thought that part was fascinating. And I held off on buying the reader because I figured, well, quite logically, this information will be in his book so he can help show the reader, you know, all the stuff he went through over the past 20 years to put the book together. He does not really do that. He, he, he gives you, you know, bits and pieces and the foreword and the epilogue and all that sort of stuff, but he doesn't walk through all the different drama that he went through to get the information, which just um, was very, very enlightening. But now, another, within that, 
sort of leads to the um, page, and I think it's 495, but in the reader on page 220, like he's going through and he's showing how the image of Malcolm X has been changed and different groups, you know, use Malcolm for their particular ends and all that sort of stuff. And he makes the statement, to the bulk of the African-American middle class, the Malcolm legend was generally presented in terms of his inextricable trajectory of intellectual and political maturation, culminating with his dramatic break from the NOI and embrace of interracial harmony. And so, you know, in the in the notes there I got, huh? <laughs> he he became interracial harmony. Okay. And so then we move on and on the next page he talks about January twentieth, nineteen ninety. Uh, 1999, excuse me, that's when um, Malcolm X was confirmed officially by the U.S. government and he got the the Malcolm X postage stamp. And then, i got to read this into the record. The U.S. Postal Service also released, this is a 221 in the Mirable Reader. The Postal Service also released a short biographical statement accompanying the stamp's issuance noting that the retouched photographic image of Malcolm had been taken from Associated Press Photographer at a press conference held in New York, 1964. Earlier, separatist, Arable corrects a few errors, and he ends that paragraph. The full Americanization of Malcolm X appeared to be complete. And so then I'm like, okay. So he felt that middle-class black folks was getting the image of Malcolm as becoming more race-neutral. And then the U.S. Postal Service put out a statement talking that Malcolm X had disavowed his his earlier separatist teachings. But then, so I'm like, okay, so so you're not going to fall for that yourself then, are you, Mirable? But then on page 485, and I haven't read this in totality. Again, this was brought out in the um, show on the um Fox Union show that that Mirable says yet as Malcolm's international experience became more varied and extensive his social vision expanded he became less intolerant and more open to multi-ethnic and interfaith coalitions by the final months of his months of his life he resisted identification as a black nationalist seeking ideological shelter under the race-neutral concepts of pan-Africanism and third world revolution. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm like, and so then I have to go back to, to the Gerald Ball piece where he says, 
a life of reinvention or a, or the reinvention of a life. He's trying to say that Bob O'Malley stopped seeing himself as a black nationalist. That he, he's trying he's he's trying to move him into the camp of when he came back from Mecca. He wanted to work with all white folks. He wanted to work with them. He didn't want to separate from white folks. He wanted to do all this. You know, he had changed. He had changed. And I see I only got a few minutes left here. We'll see. I get to test out the um, overtime here. Why Caucasoids, in their evil genius, have been good at recasting folks that we see as giants. They attempted to, with their mockumentary of Marcus Garvey, how many times did you hear the word megalomaniac? <laughs> I counted about ten. After that, I stopped counting. So they want to freeze frame Garvey as, as this, you know, just this crazy guy who couldn't deal with the boys and all that sort of stuff. They want to freeze frame him there. Um, Cousins always want to freeze frame King into this, I have a dream. And that's all we hear about. And we don't get any of the Vietnam speech. We don't get any of his coming two inches from telling black, black men don't register for the vote. We, we don't hear any of that. And now, and it's been going on for a little while, but now there's a concerted effort by Caucasoids and by um, Caucasoid-minded people in black skin to recast Malcolm, to recast Baba Mawali as after he got back from Mecca, the, the, the last time that he changed. He changed his views on white folks. He changed his views on all of it. And he was more open and willing to, you know, see white folks as humans and work with them and all that sort of stuff. What I'm going to play for you now is Baba Mawali's own words. January 7th, 1965, Prospects prospects for Freedom. Now, if you watch the um, Make It Plain documentary, An American Experience, I hate that subtitle, they have a part in there, you know, black and white, where you've got the reporters running up to Malcolm. We've heard you change. We've heard you change. You know, he, you know, sort of politely dealt with those responses then. But when he got back around amongst us, he fully laid out what he thought about those questions and what he thought about him changing. And it's a damn shame that Marable, who supposedly went through every book, every letter, every speech, every talk, all of that, of Malcolm, that it seems like he doesn't he, – he, and maybe he does in the later part of the book. I don't know. I ain't got there yet. But if he's going to say that Malcolm was moving away from um, black nationalism and more race-neutral pan-Africanism, that, it, it, real quick, even before I play this clip, that right there should show you that Maribel is out of touch. How in the hell is pan-Africanism race-neutral? 
Pan-Africanism is for all African people on the continent, on the planet, to um, uplift themselves. African people are black people. They're not Arabs. This goes back to that earlier crazy call. Part of the reason why the 6th and the 7th Pan-African Congress did not have the type of success that the earlier ones did is because we got caught up in that Arab question. And with the seventh one, they didn't even they didn't even hardly let um, um, black Pan Africanists from the U.S. even come. So that was a lot of folks don't even count that as a real Pan African Congress, the seventh one. But that 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 Arab piece, and again, you got to go to Pan Africanism or Parish that blog talk show. This brother is in Morocco, so he's seeing how Arabs are treating black folks firsthand, and so. Yeah, but so that right there shows that Marable doesn't even understand the concept of Pan-Africanism because we don't the, 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 we aren't including Arabs in this. Arabs are invaders, and at some point they're gonna have to get up out of North Africa or be or still live there. But as Dr. Clark said, be there under an African rule of North Africa. So either. Africans run North Africa, and the Arabs are under that rule, or y'all get the hell up out. But Pan-Africanism is for African people globally, and African and black is basically the same thing. But I have to play this, get it in the record, so folks can get his own words on what he said about did he change coming back from Mecca. The first thing I returned, I kept being asked a question by some reporters. <laughs> uh, we heard you changed. And I, I would say I was kind to the reporter, actually. I smiled and all. <laughs> but I would say to myself, how in the world can a white man expect a black man to change before he has changed? How do you expect us to change when you haven't changed? How do you expect us to change when the cause that made us as we are has not been removed? Why, it's infantile, it's immature, and adolescent on the part, on your part, to expect us to change, to expect us to be dull enough to change, when you have not yet gone to the cause of the condition that makes us act as we do. You got the wrong man. I'm a Muslim, and I believe in brotherhood, and I believe in the brotherhood of all men, but my religion doesn't make me a fool. makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work, and they will lose their control.
the how much over time that we get. Um, or maybe. Let's do this. I'm going to try something because i got to figure out how to do it anyway. We are going to continue this discussion over on my show, my original show. We get 30, 45 minutes over there. So the, the, the 240 person who's online right now, on the phone right now, um, Hang up and call my show number. We're going to do the um, carryover. Well, call over there in about two minutes because i got to get out of this switchboard and then go over to the other switchboard. Um, again, just to try it out, we're playing around with this. This is um, the first time we're doing this. So we're going to continue this on um, blogtalkradio.com slash Kamal301. Got about, you know, 40-some-odd minutes over there. Um, see, we'll be tying in <laughs> tying in archives as folks would get this for two hours and then maybe come over and get those archives. I don't know. We're just playing it out. Might playing with it. Might not do it that way again, but just seeing what will happen. So we're going to end this one now and give me about two, three minutes and then we'll go over to um, the original Africa's Reascension at Kamal 301. So, yeah, so 240-432. Give me about five minutes, and then if you want to be a part of the conversation, call in over on my show 760-454-1111. Seven six zero four five four one 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 one. Seven six zero four five four one 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 one. BlogTalkRadio dot com slash Kamal three zero one. Give me about five minutes. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.